Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 61, The Hydra. When Romania declared war on August the 27th, 1916, both the Allies and Central Powers saw an opportunity to score a major victory. In Germany, the new command duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff believed a victory against the Romanians would offset the effects of the Allied offensives and provide a boost to sagging morale, while the Entente felt that opening a new front in the Balkans would stretch the Central Powers to the limit, further hastening the rate of attrition. Both sides had reasons to be optimistic, but as we'll see today, one side's optimism would be horribly misplaced. Although she got off to a quick start, Romania would soon be undone through a combination of hubris, overambition, and sheer incompetence. Within three months, her army was shattered, and Bucharest lay under enemy occupation, her government and royal family having fled into Moldova. What I intend for us today is to present a comprehensive view of the campaign from start to finish, meaning we'll be covering three months of history in a single episode. As a result, I had to gloss over some of the finer details to make it all fit, but I feel we have enough information here to give us a good grasp of why things played out the way they did. I should also mention that Romania's borders have changed a lot since 1916, so for the sake of historical correctness, I'll be referring to all landmarks by their proper 1916 names. There is a map up at the Great War Podcast.podbean.com to help guide us through, so be sure to follow along if you can. Although the Romanian war plan, Hypothesis Z, was deeply flawed, the army did get off to an encouraging start. The campaign began at midnight on August the 27th, and unfolded at a leisurely pace. Group North's 370,000 troops invaded Transylvania, and easily took the city of Kronstadt, a city famous for its Gothic architecture and Saxon-style walls. In the south, meanwhile, first and second armies made similar progress. By dawn, both armies had ascended the Carpathians, and were well on their way to Hermannstadt, a strategic city due west of the Old River. Thus far, everything had gone right for the Romanians. There were no signs of the Habsburgs, and the local Transylvanians welcomed the troops with optimism and euphoria. Upon entering Kronstadt, the Romanian infantry were showered with gifts and kisses from the city's inhabitants. News of the celebration reached Bucharest and the capital was gripped with jubilation. By the end of August, the army had advanced 13 kilometers into Transylvania, with the vanguard expected to reach the Muresh River by early September. Unfortunately for the Romanians, the early returns in August would represent the height of their success. For reasons that are still unclear, Romanian command felt they had accomplished enough. Instead of exploiting the lack of Austrian resistance, First and Second Armies called a halt, and established a front line from Petrosen to Kronstadt, anchored in the middle by First Army at Hermannstadt. The Romanian advance had stopped, but this did not prevent serious errors from being committed. It was in Hermannstadt where the first major blunder was made. First Army Commander, General E. Von Kulser, had marched straight through the city, much to the surprise of his men and the gobsmacked civilians. It wasn't until after Kulser had cleared the city limits when an exhausted runner from 2nd Army reported that Kulser had been ordered to establish a presence in the city, 
Instead of sending a detachment to accomplish this task, Kulser swung his entire army in reverse, and marched right back to Hermannstadt like nothing had happened. This brain fart was soon followed by a second. Once headquarters had been established, not a single thought was given to fortifying the city. Kulser ordered a staff officer to begin drawing up plans for a victory parade, and the troops were let loose to enjoy a late summer day in the Transylvanian Alps. While the Romanians enjoyed life to the fullest, the central powers had not been idle. As you recall from last day, they too had a plan in place. The Austrian First Army, commanded by Art Strassenberg, was to check the Romanian advance into Transylvania, while the German Ninth Army, now commanded by Erich von Falkenhayn, would outflank the Romanians by driving over the western passes of the Transylvanian Alps. It was a typical Prussian war plan, designed to annihilate their enemy in a single swift motion. Assisting Strassenburg and Falkenhayn was the wildcard, August von Mackensen's Army of the Danube, a conglomerate force of German, Austrian, Bulgarian, and Ottoman troops which was to invade Romania from the south. By crossing the Danube, Mackensen would threaten the vital province of Dobrugia, as well as Romania's string of ports along the Black Sea. Until the Germans were ready, however, Arch Strassenberg had the unenviable task of fighting the Romanians alone. Although the Romanians held the advantage in numbers, Strassenberg had the advantage of having been born and raised in Transylvania. He knew the terrain well and understood the myopic nature of the Romanian army. He knew they would not be in a rush, and he decided early to trade space for time. As the Central Powers beefed up their armies, Strassenberg received an additional 34,000 reserves, raising his total count to 108,000 men. Strassenberg then led his force into Transylvania, and on September the 8th, encountered a Romanian detachment near the Muresh River. Strassenberg lost the battle, but the engagement at the Muresh River marked a turning point in the campaign. The victorious Romanians declared Hypothesis Z complete, and for the next 48 hours, not a single Romanian soldier fired his rifle. The guns were silent, while in Bucharest, London, and Paris, the Allies toasted their success. From here on out, however, the Romanian campaign would begin its downward spiral into tragedy. It all started on September the 5th, when Mackensen invaded the Jabruja Basin, bringing his army to the fortress belt of Turdakai and Silistra. First built by the Ottomans as a defense against Russia, the Turdakai and Silistra forts had undergone minimal upgrades since the turn of the century. Consisting of 15 separate fortifications, they guarded an important stretch of the Danube along the Bulgarian border. While technically on the Bulgarian side of the river, the forts were ceded to Romania at the end of the Second Balkan War, and Bucharest never made the effort to properly incorporate them. There were no bridges across this stretch of the river, and the only way for Romanian troops to access the forts was by ferry boat. To make matters worse, their garrison consisted of 20,000 part-time reservists, who were allegedly banned from using the fort's machine guns. Nevertheless, when Mackensen's army was spotted on the horizon, this did not stop Turdekai's commanding officer from proclaiming that Turdekai would become the Verdun of the East. Perhaps no other event symbolizes the futility and inertia of the Romanian campaign 
better than what transpired in and around Turtakai. Mackinson laid siege to the fort on September the 5th, and within 24 hours, it was clear the fort would not last long. The Germans employed their 12-inch guns with devastating effect, reducing its carapaces to rubble within hours of the siege. Dozens of Romanian reservists were buried alive by the cannonade, and the fort was set ablaze. With no way off the shore, the garrison had little choice but to hunker down and await reinforcements. The siege of Turdecai set off alarm bells in Bucharest. The fort was only 50 kilometers from the capital, and Bratiano feared that losing the fort would crush public morale. But with his armies occupied in Transylvania, his only option was to appeal to the Entente for help. It was the Russians who responded first. Brusilov appointed Andrei Zayamchovsky, a 54-year-old army officer who had spent the last year commanding a garrison in Moldova. Zayamchovsky was a man of limited military talent. He had taken the border job because it required the least amount of work. Unsurprisingly, he was sent into a blind rage when he learned he had been ordered to assist Bucharest. Andrei Zayamchovsky did not think highly of the Romanians and Brusilov's decision to charge him with this mission remains a bit of a head-scratcher. One answer is that Brusilov believed Zayanchovsky could play the diplomat, someone to soothe Romanian concerns and to act as a buffer to the anti-Romanian factions in Petrograd. But the more believable explanation is that Brusilov wanted Zayanchovsky gone. The man had been a thorn in Brusilov's side for quite some time and this was a convenient way for Brusilov to rid himself of the burden. For his role, Zayamchovsky was appalled, and protested that the appointment was a punishment for some crime that I did not even know I had committed. When he appealed to Alexeyev, the Stavka chief accused Zayamchovsky of cowardliness and being unworthy of wearing the uniform of a Russian general. Now, we could spend a good deal of time criticizing Zayanchovsky's behavior, but on the flip side of things, we need to examine what was expected of him. For starters, Zayanchovsky was not given the best troops. The Dobruja detachment consisted of a burnt-out Russian infantry division, a Cossack cavalry division, and a division of Serbian troops who defected in 1915. This motley crew was expected to then march from the Russo-Romanian border, all the way to Turdakai, some 240 kilometers south of where Zayanchovsky was stationed. Zayanchovsky did not receive this order until D-Day, September 5th, and when he did, he outright refused. In his defense, it was preposterous to expect him to reach Turdakai in time, and soon enough, events in the south would confirm his suspicions. While the Russians scrambled their response, the Romanians fared little better. On the evening of September the 5th, the Romanian 19th Division was sent to assist Turdakai, but it was held up east of Dobrich, when a Bulgarian detachment intercepted them and occupied the city. When the division was ordered to retake Dobrich, its commanding officer refused the order, claiming he would wait for Zayanchovsky to make his way south. The division thus never made it to Turdakai, and as Zayanchovsky crossed the border, things only got worse. Defending Dobruja was the Romanian 3rd Army, commanded by Mihail Aslan. So far, Aslan and his 143,000 men had little to do, 
Bucharest refused to grant them permission to move, and army command was still unsure on how best to deploy them despite the very real threat from Mackensen. In any event, it appears Bucharest simply forgot about Aslan's force, or at the very least, forgot to tell them that a Russian detachment was on the way. When Zyanchovsky crossed the border on September 6th, parts of 3rd Army mistook the Russians for Bulgarians, and instead of opening fire, threw down their weapons and surrendered. Friendly fire would have made a terrible first impression, and I guess we can consider this the best of a bad situation. But then things got very nasty. The fact that the Romanians surrendered without so much as a warning shot confirmed Zyanchovsky's prejudices. Take into account his already foul mood, and it was a recipe for disaster. What little patience Zyanchovsky possessed evaporated, and he turned his troops loose on the countryside. Wine cellars were plundered, livestock slaughtered, while fields and estates were put under torch. According to Olga Herwig, the Russians also drowned drunken soldiers in vats of burning spirits. So much for Allied cooperation. These two incidences, Zyanchovsky's march and the loss of Dobrich, occurred within 48 hours, all the while Turdekai remained under heavy siege. The tragedy was completed the following day. Faced with total encirclement, Turdekai's commanding officer surrendered the fort on September 6th. The Verdun of the East had held out for fewer than 24 hours. Three Romanian generals and 38,000 men were captured as a result. Mackensen's losses numbered about 7,000. If the Romanians were following any coherent strategy, any chance of salvaging their campaign had fast evaporated. The fall of Turdekai reversed the enthusiasm of the campaign's opening days, and now Bucharest was forced to improvise. It was inevitable that after two embarrassing setbacks, changes to command were a coming. The following day, 2nd Army Commander Alexandru Avarescu was appointed Supreme Commander by Bradiano, a move widely criticized as backdoor favoritism. Avarescu was, however, the best choice. Widely considered to be the most sensible voice among the senior staff, Avarescu took the necessary step by abandoning Hypothesis Z altogether, opting to pull 2nd Army out of Transylvania to help protect the Danube. The decision to abandon Hypothesis Z was controversial for two reasons. One, it eliminated the very rationale behind going to war in the first place. Romania's goal had been to secure Transylvania, and now Avarescu was advocating pulling out of Hungary. Second, the other officers were adamantly opposed. In particular, General Prezon from North Army hated the idea. Despite the fact the French, British, and Russians were advocates of Avarescu's proposal, Prezon wanted to wait until the Transylvanian armies completed their conquest. Prezon had also convinced King Ferdinand to call a conference for all field army commands, where each man would have the chance to put forth his suggestion. This democratic approach may sound nice to our ears a century later, but by mid-1916 the time for diplomacy had run out. The kingdom was under invasion, and with the bulk of their army stationed on the other side of the Carpathians, only 3rd Army was left to defend the interior. 
It seems that Bradiano was banking on a Romanian version of the Marne, a last-minute attempt that would snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. The French and British were eager to assist in this regard, but outside of sending advisors, there was little they could do. Romania's only hope lay with the Russians, who after the incident with Zyamchovsky were no longer in the mood to help. September the 21st marked a dark day in the campaign. It began with word arriving in Bucharest that Brusilov was shutting down his Galician offensive. The bad news out of Russia was further compounded by what happened the following day. Unbeknownst to the Romanian forces in Transylvania, Erich von Falkenhayn had led 9th Army into the Alps, with his sights set on the city of Hermannstead. Fresh off his dismissal as chief of the general staff, Falkenhayn was eager to prove himself in the field. He had been in Transylvania since September the 15th, and wasted no time in getting himself ready for the invasion. Within a week of his arrival, 9th Army scouts had mapped out the surrounding area, and supplies were arriving by the trainload. Coincidentally, one of 9th Army's most valued units was the Bavarian Alpine Corps, elite troops specially trained for mountainous warfare. The Alpine Corps was commanded by Kraft von Delminzingen. If that name sounds familiar, it's because we've encountered him before. It was Delminzingen's Alpine troops who spearheaded the attack on Fleury Ridge on June the 21st, which we covered back in episode 47, Crisis at Verdun. Free from the terrors of the Meuse, the Alpine Corps were ready to flex their muscles, and Falkenheim put them to good use. On September 20th, they were sent into the Alps to gain information on Romanian positions. It did not take long for them to make contact with Romanian patrols, and they promptly reported back to Falkenhayn the presence of a large enemy force near Hermannstead. Falkenhayn led his army into the mountains on September 22nd, and he immediately found the crossing was fraught with danger. 1,800 meters above sea level, battling howling winds and freezing temperatures, 9th Army had a rough go of it. Romanian patrols were not their only concern. Bears and wolves were reported to have stalked the men throughout the mountains. On more than one occasion, the men were startled awake by the screams of some poor soul being dragged off into the night. It was not long before 9th Army had fallen behind schedule, but by September the 28th it had reached the outskirts of Hermannstad. The battle which followed was quick and decisive. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, the Romanians had made no effort to reinforce Hermannstad. Kulser's victory parade had yet to take place, and the garrison seemed to have no knowledge of the inbound threat. When Falkenhayn attacked the city on September 29th, the Romanians melted away without putting up a fight. Hermannstad fell to 9th Army within 24 hours. By the time German troops reached the city center, the sun was beginning to set. Wisely, Falkenhayn refused to give chase, believing a blind charge into the mountains would do more harm than good. Nevertheless, the Romanians had been beaten. Hundreds had been scythed down by machine guns as they fled, and one eyewitness later testified, the Romanians had left a trail of smashed wagons and corpses in their wake, a clear indicator of where they were headed. The loss of Hermannstad was a major blow to Romania's grip on Transylvania. 
Falkenhayn now had the ability to spread his armies across the plateaus and to secure the Vulcan and Cerdic passes, granting him access to Wallachia. The Romanians, however, had gone to great lengths to reinforce these passes, often with booby traps and concealed machine guns at strategic choke points. Few failed to see the irony when Falkenhayn refused to funnel his men into a death trap, and instead chose a more practical option. Against the wishes of Ludendorff, Falkenhayn left a detachment to grind away at the Vulcan and Cerdic passes, while he slid his army west to east along the northern edge of the mountains. Falkenhayn's plan was to cut the Romanians off, and prevent them from escaping into Wallachia. The plan nearly worked. On October 9th, Falkenhayn scored another victory, this time at Kronstadt. The loss of this city threatened the Romanians with encirclement. Avarescu ordered the Vulcan and Cerdic passes to be sealed with rock, but a timely intercept from Delmenzingen's Alpine Corps prevented this from happening. The Germans were now able to enter the Romanian heartland. Within two weeks, the Central Powers had regained control of Transylvania, and the next phase of the campaign switched to the Wallachian Plain. Here, their armies would begin to converge. Mackensen advanced north into Dobrugia, while Falkenhayn and Strasenberg came down from the northwest. Kaiser Wilhelm wanted a victory before the first snows, and on October the 15th, the pincers began to close. The Romanian army was incapable of handling such pressure. Over the following weeks, the Central Powers inflicted blow after blow on the Romanians, defeating them in a number of set-piece battles. It was apparent that Romania's best chance at survival was to stage a heroic glass stand between the Alt and Argus rivers, which became unavoidable once Falkenhayn turned his attention east. At this point in the campaign, one could be forgiven for thinking the Central Powers had it easy, but in reality that was far from the truth. An inadequate railway network, coupled with poorly developed roads, meant that 1st and Ninth armies were limited to a walking pace for much of the advance. The fruitful fields of Wallachia had been transformed by war. Drenched by constant rain and torn up by thousands of horses and columns of men, the ground had turned into a thick, gray-black mass of mud. Soldiers were up to their ankles in it, and more than a few guns and horses were swallowed up. But here's the kicker. When the weather was good, and trains could be procured, the Central Powers moved with frightening speed, with some cavalry units averaging an impressive 40 kilometers per day. This has led some historians like Michael B. Barrett to view the Romanian campaign of 1916 as a prelude to the blitzkrieg tactics adopted by German forces two decades later. If it weren't for inclement weather and the odd case of sabotage, Barrett suggests the Central Powers may have been able to overrun the country in half the time. On November 23rd, Mackensen launched his main offensive along the Danube. German, Austrian, Bulgarian, and Ottoman troops crossed the mighty river on pontoon bridges and riverboats, all while under the protection of Austrian warships, which pounded the Romanian defenses with their 12-centimeter cannons. Within days of the launch, a 27-kilometer bridgehead between Svistov and Berlin had been secured, and the combined army began to fan out in all directions. 
Falkenhayn, however, had run into trouble. His men were gassed. No, not from poison gas, but from nearly three weeks of constant marching over inhospitable terrain and poor weather. Wallachia is, of course, famous for its folklore. A land of werewolves, vampires, and other wonderful creatures that go bump in the night. Obviously, the invaders were not ambushed by Dracula and a mob of bats, but the Wallachian countryside was anything but friendly. The snows had come early, and the valleys of the Carpathian foothills were under 60 centimeters of snow before the vanguard arrived. Ninth Army had stalled, which meant Mackinson had exposed his force without support from the north. It was here when the Romanians and General Henri Berthelo spied their chance. General Henri Berthelot was head of the French military mission to Romania, where he was to observe and advise Bucharest throughout the campaign. At 55 years of age, Berthelot was stable and aggressive. Having served as Joffre's chief of staff at the Battle of the Marne, he was a counterattack specialist, who felt the Romanians had a chance to isolate Mackinson, defeating his army before Falkenhayn had a chance to link up. Now, you do not have to go far to see parallels between the Marne and what was happening in Romania. You'll remember from when we discussed the Marne way back in episode 15 that it was a miscommunication between the German armies that allowed the French to drive a wedge between them. Well, with Falkenhayn stalled, Mackensen's flank parallel to the Danube was exposed, and Berthelo saw an opportunity to bottle Mackensen up at the river Argus which flows from the southern Carpathians before entering the Danube, meaning it forms a protective barrier east of Bucharest. Swap out the Romanian capital for Paris, and replace the Argus with the Marne, and you have a situation eerily similar to what we saw in France in 1914. Unlike 1914, however, the Allies in Romania were acting across purposes. The Russians wanted to evacuate, but the French wanted a counterattack. The Romanians, for their part, seemed incapable to grasp the severity of the situation. Avarescu was on board, but needed convincing, while members of the cabinet doubted the chance of success. The performance of the Romanian army thus far had not been cause for much optimism. Compounded by their lack of modern weapons, communication, and supplies, the chances of them pulling off such a complex maneuver was unrealistic to say the least. But as historian Britt Batar asks, what other choice did the Romanians have? There was no time to build strong enough defenses, and the thought of relocating the capital was morally unthinkable. If nothing else, a successful attack along the Argus could throw a wrench in the German war plan. At this point, just stopping the advance would be a small victory. As the Allies argued over who would do what, the invading armies pulled themselves together. Falkenhayn descended from Wallachia, while Mackensen drove up the Black Sea coast. The key port of Constanza fell in early November, bringing large reservoirs of wheat and oil under the control of the Central Powers. Although the enemy had advanced with frightening speed, Berthelot remained set on a counterattack. His plan was to have the 1st Romanian army hold Falkenhayn in Wallachia, while the 2nd and 3rd armies struck at Mackensen's exposed flank. As with all counterattacks, its success was dependent on gaining the element of surprise. 
the Romanian staff were now convinced that Mackinson's flank was ripe for the taking. Equally encouraging were rumors that suggested the Bulgarian and Turkish divisions were exhausted to the point of mutiny. To be clear, no mutiny ever took place, but the rumor no doubt stemmed from Mackinson's terrible relationship with the Bulgarian general Stefan Toshev. Before the Romanians could launch their grand offensive, two events doomed it to failure. At 5pm on December 1st, two Romanian officers were driving along a darkened road, when they took a wrong turn and ended up behind the lines of Dalminzingen's Alpine Corps. The officers were taken into custody, and in their possession was, and I kid you not, the entire Romanian battle plan. Falkenhayn now knew for certain what the Romanians were planning. He immediately warned Mackinson of the threat to his north, and dispatched a single corps to march between the Romanian 1st Army and the attack group destined for Mackinson. In other words, even if the Romanians succeeded in driving Mackinson back across the Danube, they would find themselves surrounded by Falkenhayn's 9th. The Romanians were late to discover they had been found out. When the Germans appeared on the horizon, they were not in the positions Berthelot expected them to be in. Chaos soon followed. The Battle of Bucharest began on December 2nd and was not even close. The Romanians deployed 150,000 troops against the Central Powers' 250,000, and as expected, the numeric disadvantage spelt doom. Most of the fighting was concentrated south of the city, along the Argus and its right tributary, the Naslov. Now, putting together a coherent narrative of the battle is difficult. Sandwiched between Falkenhayn's 9th and Mackinson's Danube army, the fighting devolved into small piecemeal battles, fought over the villages and towns outside the capital. These engagements were further parceled down by rivers, woodlands, and in Falkenhayn's case, the Carpathian foothills. Suffice to say that trying to account for each one of these battles would be much too tedious. But the key moment in the battle occurred on December the 3rd. During the battle, Mackinson's Army of the Danube was attacked on both flanks by the Romanian 2nd and 3rd Armies. As the fighting progressed, Mackinson grew concerned about the safety of his right flank to the east. Here, the 217th Infantry Division, comprised mainly of Bulgarian units, was being ground down by determined Romanian resistance. Mackinson was troubled by reports that suggested Russian infantry were fighting alongside the Romanians, which was very bad news since the Central Powers had no knowledge of any Russian units in the area. The situation with the 217th Division was dire. It was engaged near the town of Klehon, home of one of the main bridges across the Naslov, and thus a vital piece of real estate. Thus far, the Romanians had kept the bridge in their possession, preventing Mackinson from making further advances. Mackinson's flank was finally saved by the timely arrival of the 11th Bavarian Infantry Division, which had snuck up on the Romanians undetected and struck them from the northwest. The sudden appearance of an enemy force caused the Romanians to crack. The pair of Romanian divisions attempted to disengage, but found the Germans were hot on their heels. A horrific scene at Clayhon Bridge soon played out. Romanian officers ordered the bridge destroyed, 
but the volume of men, horse, and vehicles attempting to cross made it impossible. The congestion caused a delay, allowing the German assault group to catch up. Those gridlocked on the bridge could only stare in horror as German artillery opened up, reducing the bridge to a choked tangle of wrecked vehicles, body parts, and dead horses. Survivors of the cannonade tried to wade to the other side, but were swept up in the current or froze to death in the icy waters. The loss of Clayhon Bridge meant any hope of defending Bucharest had vanished. 48 hours later, King Ferdinand approved evacuation orders. Bucharest was abandoned. Similar to what we saw in Serbia, the Romanian government, its army, and long lines of refugees retreated northeast. The Russians had agreed to construct a defensive position in Moldova, and one by one, the remnants of the defeated nation passed into exile. August von Mackensen entered Bucharest on December the 5th, and was immediately struck by what he described as a surreal experience. Expecting to meet a hostile population, the Germans were greeted with indifference. As the conquerors marched through, there was the odd insult hurled away, but by and large, the population paid them no mind. Cafes were jammed with customers, and markets were full of goods and produce. Mackinson would later write about the experience in his memoir, and I quote, It couldn't have been organized better in Berlin. There were a few hurrahs and greetings in German. But were we not in the midst of the population of an enemy capital city? Was this not wartime? Were we in a dream? Hadn't we been involved in heavy fighting just a few hours ago? Instead of enemy bullets, we were hit by a flower? We passed the Palace of Justice, and after passing through a narrowing of the road, we were suddenly in front of the royal castle. End quote. City officials turned Bucharest over to Mackinson on December the 5th, and that evening, patrols from Falkenhayn's 9th Army made contact. Although there were cases of looting and pillage in the countryside, the transition of power was peaceful. According to Mackinson, the civil authorities maintained order in an exemplary manner, and in exchange, the Germans guaranteed that all property seized by the army would be treated with the utmost respect. As the men stepped out into the courtyard, they were greeted with cheers from the city's German and Austrian inhabitants. It was all picturesque and dignified, yet it masked a darker reality. Beyond the capital, huge spires of smoke were creeping up on the horizon. The massive Ploiesti oil fields north of Bucharest had been set aflame. Under orders from London, a team of British commandos, led by Major John Griffiths, had been dispatched to Romania to prevent as much of the country's oil infrastructure from falling into German hands as possible. Griffiths, an arc imperialist who was known for having a bit of a mean streak, received a cold welcome in Bucharest in mid-November. The Romanians were understandably opposed to destroying their most precious commodity, so Griffiths was forced to operate independently. His team worked swiftly. Consisting of specially trained engineers and like-minded Romanians, Griffiths' men worked tirelessly to deny the Central Powers access to the oil. Some installations were destroyed, concrete was poured into wells, and railway tracks were sabotaged. It was outright scorched-earth tactics 
and Griffith had special permission to use force if the population resisted. In the end, it is estimated Griffith destroyed 70 refineries, with nearly 800,000 tons of crude oil. The conquest of Romania was all but complete by January 1917. Falkenhayn and Strassenburg reached the Serret River, stamping out the last remnants of resistance. For Romania, the human cost was devastating. 163,515 men killed or wounded, 146,000 taken prisoner, and 90,000 missing. Of her 25 divisions, six had disintegrated, and the Central Powers had captured nearly 300,000 rifles, 346 machine guns, and 359 artillery pieces. Since Brediano's government had fled into Moldova, there would be no official terms. Romania would stay in the war, but as a nation in exile. Yet this did not stop celebrations in Berlin and Vienna. The conquest had brought massive spoils. More than 1 million tons of oil, 2 million tons of grain, 300,000 heads of cattle, pigs and goats, and 200,000 tons of lumber. These supplies were vital for the Central Powers' war effort, which ultimately would allow Germany to continue the war into 1918. For the Allies, the fall of Romania was devastating, especially for the Russians, who had to extend their lines another 320 kilometers southward to the Black Sea, to prevent the Central Powers from invading Galicia out of occupied Romania. Put simply, the fall of Romania had wiped out everything Brusilov had gained over the summer. The new sector of the front, which followed the Carpathian border between eastern Transylvania and Romania before turning eastward, could only be covered by thinning the rest of the eastern front, and committing all of Russia's reserves. Take into account the dismal events of 1915, and you have all the makings of catastrophe. The Brusilov Offensive was Russia's shining moment, but all the blood and sacrifice it demanded had been for naught. The first mutiny occurred on the night of October 1st, and by the end of the year, more than a dozen units refused to obey orders. By December 1916, Russia's offensive power and its army were in fact broken. Most of her divisions were at 50% and it was estimated that her army would need 300,000 new soldiers every month for six months in order to refill the ranks for an offensive in 1917. Where these men would come from, no one really knew, but solving the manpower crisis would become the least of Russia's worries. 23 days after the fall of Bucharest, Grigory Rasputin was shot dead in the courtyard of Yazapov Palace in Petrograd. The death of the Mad Monk did not solve Russia's problems, but it did usher in a whole set of new ones, one which would slowly drag her into the abyss of chaos and revolution. Next week will be a bit of a detour. Before heading back to the Somme, there are three events which we'll need to cover. September and October 1916 were busy months elsewhere. On the German home front, Ludendorff introduced a strict rationing program, ushering in the infamous turn-up winter of 1917. At Salonika, a pro-Allied coup almost saw Greece declare war. And in Vienna, Emperor Franz Joseph 
passed away at 86 years of age. The Austro-Hungarian Empire would need new leadership, and the man who ascended was not convinced Germany could deliver victory. By the new year, Emperor Charles was not looking for general peace, but a separate one. A peace that would secure the survival of the monarchy and leave Germany to fight on alone. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and wish to help us out, you can make a one-time donation through the homepage. All donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and of acquiring new sources. Another way to help the show is to rate us 5 stars on iTunes. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will ensure I stay tethered to my laptop and continue working on new episodes. This has been episode 61 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.